Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today we have Eric White, who is the founder and CEO of EBB Group, a boutique investment banking firm. This episode of the Business Exit Stories is especially interesting because of the type and the size of deals Eric Firm handles. During this episode, I want you to pay particular attention as Eric describes the type of buyers and some of the categories and subcategories of these buyers. Most business owners don't fully appreciate how important it is to know who is buying your company and what their real motivations are. In the first transaction that Eric shares with us is how a transaction can literally get thrown out the window when the key people in both the buyer and the seller get along so well. They get along so well, in fact, that there's a lot of trust that's built up during the due diligence process. Now, normally you might think this is a great thing, that you build trust up and you like the buyer and this buyer likes the seller. This is really a good thing. But I want you to listen how this trust actually turned into a bad thing that eventually ended up cratering the deal. It isn't what you think might have happened that cratered the deal. Next, Eric shares in a very specific type of deal what the challenges are and how any business owner that is selling a business needs to understand that every deal, regardless of its size and the hurdles that it's going to face, that you need to face these individual challenges one at a time and that it is just a normal process in every deal. And when it comes to things getting really personal, this can really end up cratering the deal and costing you potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Eric then goes on and talks about a transaction that sometimes happens when a business owner gets into their head. The value of their business is not really what the market is telling you the value is, but it is something that is totally unrelated to the value of their business, such as what a friend sold their business for that was roughly the same size as your business. You'll learn how destructive this whole concept of valuing a business based on non-financial metrics or what the market is going to tell you your business is actually worth. What you think the business is actually worth is irrelevant. Finally, Eric wraps up this episode with a transactional story on how not having a handle on the validity and the accuracy of your revenues can literally wipe millions of dollars of profits off of the books and with a stroke of a pen, devalue your business. You'll learn how this happened and what the business owner did to rectify that situation. I want you to listen to a definition that you're going to hear, and some of you will hear this for the first time. You'll learn what a quality of earnings report is all about and why it is important. 
This is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories. Today, we're here with Eric White. Eric, would you take a few minutes and introduce yourself and your company? Yeah, thank you, Marvin. I appreciate that. Um, I'm Eric White. I'm the founder, owner, and CEO of EBB Group. We're a 25-year-old investment banking firm headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we have offices in Los Angeles, New York, uh, Dallas, obviously, Chicago, Charlotte, and Tampa, Florida. We have about 30 folks in our firm. As I've mentioned to Marvin, one of our differentiators is we have uh, eight CFOs that work for us. We have 10 investment bankers. Uh, so we have a mix of investment bankers as well as actual business people that have uh, been in operations, have been in the financial world. And we think that's a really good mix uh, uh, to help out clients that we represent. Well, when you have that kind of team approach and approaching the deals that you work on and the transactions that you're able to get across the closing line here, why don't we talk about a couple of those transactions that had their challenges and may have not closed because of those challenges? So why don't you share a specific transaction that had challenging aspects to the deal? Yes. Um and like I told you before, uh, any deal that closes is not a bad deal, no matter how much trouble it is or how much work it is. So uh, these are two particular deals that did not close uh, with us. And so uh, for us, those are bad deals. Uh, but the one in particular, um, it is a wire components company uh, in Texas market. Uh, we had a, a relationship with... Um, really the, the wrong person, as it turned out. There was two owners. One was 75% and one was 25%. The 25% owner was the operating partner. And that was who our relationship was mostly with uh, by design. That's how they wanted it. So we were working with that gentleman. Uh, and then also when we ran the process and we found a buyer for this company, the uh, the person that also we had a strong relationship with was the operating partner for the buyer. And it turns out that these two people fell in love with each other. Uh, they really, really wanted to work together and get this deal done. But unfortunately, the two people that really impacted this deal were the, the two principals of the private equity group and this particular company. And we did not have deep relationships with them. Uh, so we really think in looking back, that was the fatal flaw. So uh, any business owner, I think looking at a situation like this, uh, it's critical that you hire an investment banker that understands the buy buying process that looks under every rock for buyers, whether it be private equity, whether it be family office, whether it be strategic. So you mentioned these buyer pools that you work with. So let's talk a little bit about the private equity world is kind of divided up into the different groups that make up private equity. As we talked earlier, there are um, there's three main pools of buyers that business owners need to be aware of. Uh, one is family offices, which uh, are generally family money. Uh, they can hold businesses for a long time. Another pool is strategics. Uh, strategics are other light companies in that industry that would be interested in buying your company. But the third group is the real misunderstood group, and that is private equity. Private equity has two basic uh, separate categories. So the first category is committed capital, which means that they've raised funds for uh, to go to market with. And in the middle market, which is where we work in, in the kind of the 10 to 500 million enterprise value size, a private equity firm will generally have raised between a hundred million and a billion. 
Okay, so we're not talking to groups that have $20 billion like Bain Capital. They would never buy a company in this size market. They only do over billion dollar deals. Um, so committed capital groups are great because they have money. Uh, so that's generally not a concern as far as getting a deal done. The other group is more problematic and they're called independent sponsors. Uh, independent sponsors have not raised money, but they generally have um, a group of investors that have either invested with them in the past or have said to them, we will invest with you if you bring us the right deal. Uh, to get a deal done with an in independent sponsor, you have to be under LOI first. So that's also really tricky. Um, they, they have to get the deal secured before they can go get the money. And uh, that, that makes us nervous. It makes our clients nervous uh, that a deal will get done because you're never really guaranteed the money is going to be there until the very end. Unlike a committed capital group, you know, they already have the money. So why is this really important in this particular transaction when you obviously you said that buyers and sellers, the operating partners really took a liking to each other? Why was this sponsor relationship so important? Yes, it was actually in this particular deal, it was very important. Uh, we're usually very skeptical of independent sponsors. Uh, we check them out. But because uh, we had a long-term relationship with the operating partner of this independent sponsor, the person who was out front, who was going to run the company for the buyer when they bought it, uh, we had a long relationship with them. Um, so they assured us money was not a problem. The independent sponsor assured us money was not a problem. And I want to leave with business owners. If somebody says money's not a problem, you can bet that it is a problem. Uh, that's kind of a, a fact um, in the deal world. And so we, um, our big takeaway from this deal was that we fell in love with the two operating partners. They fell in love with each other. Uh, but they were not the critical ones to get this deal done. So the operating partners are really the people that were doing the day-to-day, -day, but weren't really the financial side of the business. Exactly right. Uh, and that was the key to this. Um, and that's why the deal kept moving along, because the people that do the day-to-day -day stuff loved each other. And they wanted to work together, but they weren't the ones that securing the financing or had the final say in how the deal was going to get done. Um, so that's it's a critical thing for business owners to understand going into it is uh, knowing that the group that they're going to sign an LOI with truly has access to capital uh, and doesn't just say they have access to capital. So I'm telling you the way you're positioning the story and sharing the story with our audience here is that the money really wasn't there, even though they said money is no problem, but it really was going to be a problem from when I can tell how this story is moving along, right? That's exactly right. Um, it took us, gosh, six to nine months to go through this process. At the end of the process, right before the purchase agreement was signed, that's when we found out that money was a problem. Uh, the, the person at the independent sponsor um, said, sorry, um, I, I didn't think this was going to be a problem. But as it turns out, the investor I had has had problems. They're going to back out. The other people we're talking to, they're not going to do it. So money all of a sudden became the reason the deal died because it was not secure. So even in a situation like this, and just to be clear, as you're talking about in the private equity world, you have committed capital, which means that money has been raised in a fund and is there waiting to do deals. So there's a lot of motivation to get deals done because the money has been already committed. And then you have the uncommitted money 
that bring me a deal. And if we like it, we will go out at that point in time and talk to our investors. And if they like it, they will invest in the deal. And so that's a much more tenuous type of financial commitment. And so what we're really saying here is that even in this transaction, when the buyer really wanted to do the deal, the seller really wanted to buy the deal, but neither the buyer or the seller had access to that capital because it wasn't committed. When the push came to shove, no money, right? That's exactly right. That's the way it turns out that this this happened. Uh, the deal died. Uh, the owners that we represent are very frustrated, as you can imagine, because we we're very close to closing. And you said it took like what you said six, nine, ten months at least. Yeah, the, it was probably a nine to twelve months process. And from what you're telling, every both parties were spending money on deal points and attorneys and absolutely purchase agreements and employment agreements and all the things that go along because you. Were we're in the LOI stage and we're really teeing it up to get funded. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of time, money was spent uh, doing this deal and, and it all failed because the group really didn't have the money, uh, even though they said they had the money. So so really the big takeaway on this, Eric, is uh, I guess make sure the money's in the bank. I guess that's probably the only way you can say it. And so you know the type of buyer that you're dealing with, whether the money is really there or not. Yeah, I want to be real clear on something, Marvin, to this, because if business owners need to understand this, most of the buyers in the private equity world are independent sponsors. So I certainly don't want to give the impression you cannot get a deal done with an independent sponsor. Uh, my message, though, is just you need to know about it going into it with your eyes wide open, knowing that's going to be a challenge. Uh, they get a lot of deals done. A lot of deals are done with independent sponsors. Um, so you just have to know the game going into it. You have to really trust and verify information and, and you can do that. You can verify their bank information. You can verify, uh, capital letters. You can verify who their investors are. If they've done deals before, you can generally have a pretty high level of confidence. The ones I'm cautioning business owners against are independent sponsors that have never done a deal. Those are the real crapshoots. Uh, and that we even stay away from. Well, I think that's good advice. Uh, I guess the real takeaway one might say is really know enough to ask the question. Yes. Of, of who the buyer is. If you know enough to ask the question of are the buyers funded and what type of buyer it is, you can save yourself a lot of grief. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's move on, uh, Eric. That was, I think, a good transactional story with a good takeaway for our audience here. Why don't we talk about another uh, transaction you've been involved in that had its challenges? Yeah, thank you, Marvin. Um, the other one that jumps to mind immediately because we didn't close it. Again, uh, all bad deals are ones that don't close. This was in North Carolina. Um, similar time frame. This was back in the 2017 uh, era. And uh, it was a, a company that was very involved in solvents and um, uh, different things like that, paint solvents uh, for the marine industry, as well as construction industry. They did gel coating. And for any of you that aren't familiar with gel coating, uh, gel coating is on almost everything. Anything that contacts water is generally gel coated, whether it be, uh, you know, kitchen countertops that are marble or, or boats, certainly. So it's a really nice company. had been around for 45 years. We uh, had uh, worked with the owner. It was a uh, husband and wife. They were in their mid-70s. 
Uh, they did not have a, a transition plan. They did not have family in the business beside themselves. And so really we're looking to do something and um, a, a similar kind of story really to the other one. Uh, we were, we ran a normal process. Uh, we found a number of buyers, but we had a difference in valuation. And, and that's one thing I want your audience to understand is it's real important that a business owner is on the same page with his investment advisor on the value of their company. Uh, investment advisors like us, investment banks, uh, do detailed valuations based on precedent transactions, based on discounted cash flow analysis, and based on EBITDA multiples. Uh, so we're professionals. We know how to do valuations. And so uh, we have to be on the same page uh, value-wise. This owner really thought his business was worth in the upper 30s, 38, $40 million. Uh, We were convinced it was not worth that much. Uh, we told them uh, it would likely be in the 28 to 32 range when all of a sudden then based on our analysis and valuation. So where did he sort of get the idea that his business had that type of value? Well, that's a great question. Uh, we found out later, we didn't know this at the time, that he found out from a, uh, a friend of his that kind of was on the fringes of the investment world that was not in it day to day, but he was, he was an attorney and he was involved in a deal that uh, they got a real good valuation in a completely different industry. And so he had put that in his head. And that's what we see happens a lot of times. So it's, you're really saying that this other company probably had a similar revenue stream than he had. And so he equated his revenue to the other company's revenue and computed a value from that. Yeah, it was complete an apples versus oranges situation. And uh, you're right, it was based on something that's, that's not representative of that particular industry, uh, that particular market, that particular everything. It's They were very different companies. And so we fight that a lot in our world, actually, where owners of companies hear things about valuation that are just not true. Uh, and they get numbers in their head that are not accurate. And that leads to frustration. So what we really try to do is build proper expectations going into a deal so their frustration doesn't build where people think value is different. Well, once I know that uh, those type of numbers get locked into their mind and they really get the idea that their company isn't worth least that or probably even more. My company is better than that one. And so they get locked into these values, which can be a real hurdle down the road. Absolutely. It's a huge hurdle. Um, it's kind of hard to unring a bell. You know, we've all heard that phrase before. So if somebody gets in their head that their business is worth X and the market tells them it's worth Y, they think the market's crazy. Uh, the market isn't crazy. The market knows how to value businesses. Uh, so yeah, we, we fight that battle quite a bit. Uh, and, make, and we actually turned down a number of deals where the owner has unrealistic expectations of value. Okay, in this situation, then that sounded like a good business. So you're able to go to market and bring offers to the table. Yep. And these offers were probably in what the market always does is it, it settles on what the market value really is. And sounds like from what you're telling me is that his business actually did support in the ballpark of what he was looking for. Yeah, as it turned out, we were 100% right. Um, we, I said 28 to 32, we actually had an LOI for 30 million, which is right in the middle of that range. Uh, so we were right on the nose. Uh, the buyer who again 
led us to believe that money was not a problem. Uh, we had checked him out pretty closely. He had a career in Wall Street. Uh, we know he had a lot of uh, assets. And um, so we were pretty comfortable with Aspire, but he was an independent sponsor again. And um, so we, we worked with him over a period of time. And so we had an LOI in place for 26 million cash, $4 million seller note, which was accepted, was signed for by the husband and wife. So we go down the road. Uh, we're trying to finish up the due diligence, get the contract done, the purchase agreement uh, went right down the road. But they, um, another great lesson I want to tell all your your client, all your uh, business owners that are listening to your podcast is, you know, when you're going down the road with somebody, you have to keep your eye on the ball. And that's what we tell owners all the time. The most important thing they can do is run their business. Deals die when business goes down. Uh, and we've had so many situations where owners get preoccupied with the process, with talking to buyers, and they stop running their business. And their business starts to slow down and value goes down. Uh, the value of a company goes right up until the day of closing. Uh, so if, if your numbers start to really suffer during the process, that's a huge negative. That's what happened in this deal. Um, the, the numbers started to suffer. Let me ask you a question here. Did the numbers start to suffer because the owner, like you said, gets so involved in the process that he took his eye off of the ball, started focusing on the transaction and the business uh, because of that diversion and interest and focus, the business started to slip? Or was this something else? Yeah, thank you. I was going to clarify this, actually. Um, I'd say 90% of the time, the issue is the owner takes their eye off the ball. Uh, their business suffers. In this particular case, it was economic. Uh, it was the economy uh, was having a downturn. And uh, when the economy has a downturn, people are not out buying new boats. Uh, they're more worried about uh taking care of roof over their head and that type of, of real basic necessities. And so this particular situation was a function of the economy, uh, but it had the same effect, right? So the business uh, was down uh, during the period of the due diligence. And so because of that, the buyer was nervous and he said, we need to take a little more time. We need to make sure the business comes out of this lull. It was about a three month lull during the summer. Uh, and so uh, at the end of the period, they, everybody agreed, let's take a three or four month hiatus. Uh, let's come back and, and see where it is at the end of the summer. We did that. Uh, the business had started to come back, but the buyer at that time, and this happens quite regularly, if the business starts to have a downturn, you're going to get a retrade. Uh, that, that happens a lot. And so the business was not doing what it was doing previously when the LOI was made. And so this buyer was very conscientious. He wanted to keep a relationship with the seller and not insult him. So well, you, had a, you really had a motivated buyer here. Very motivated. That wanted to buy the business, but things beyond his control, the business slowed down. So it would be normal, right? I mean, in a situation like this, a buyer who is a prudent, sophisticated buyer is going to come back and say, well, based on what we have, going on right now, we kind of want to modify the terms of the deal to be something that they kind of hedge. And if it turns out the business does come back, you'll get what we originally agreed to. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in this case, the buyer was very professional. Uh, we've had many situations where they will just do a retrade and the sale price goes down. Well, he didn't want to do that. He kept the 30 million price. He just changed the structure of the deal. 
uh, to make it palatable to the owner. Uh, so he changed the deal and took 4 million cash at it closing. So instead of 26, it was 22. And it, we created, and I actually helped him with this process because we suggested a do a short-term earnout of one year uh, that the owner would be palatable with. So they took that 4 million and said, okay, you'll get the 4 million, not at closing, but you'll get it one year from closing as long as the business is doing what it was doing. Uh, and, and all the projections showed that it would do what it was doing. So we all felt very comfortable. Well, it sounds pretty reasonable, though, under the circumstances that uh, one year is not a long-term earnout. Uh, no, it's a short-term earnout. We thought it was a wonderful solution for everybody. Unfortunately, the owner did not think it was a good solution. Uh, he was offended by it that somebody would. He thought he was taking money out of his pocket. He thought his business was as good as it ever was. But um, again, numbers don't lie. And uh, the, the numbers were off. And um, so I, I actually thought the buyer handled this very appropriately, very professionally. And my client, uh, again, let emotion get into it, got offended and uh, decided not to go forward. Well, in a situation like this, it sounds like the seller probably had been through these cycles many times before and had always seen business come back. And in his mind... The business was solid as ever, but you have a buyer here that's just trying to hedge his bet. And in this particular situation, wanted just a one-year $4 million earnout. that if the business had bounced back and he would have gotten his $4 million and everyone would have been happy, but he got offended. And you're telling me he walked away from the deal and the deal died. You really wrapped it up perfectly because this owner, uh, and I understood it completely, he had been running his company for 45 years. Uh, he knew it would bounce back. He had always seen it bounce back. So uh, I didn't blame him because he had great confidence in his company. He had seen ups and downs. And so, but that happens quite a bit. And that's really why our role is so important as an intermediary. If buyers and sellers, if they had been talking directly this whole time, the deal would have died probably six months before this because buyers and sellers have very different motivations, right? Each is trying to get the best deal possible. And so an inter intermediary, our main job is to be a buffer, to repackage information. And so we were able to do that, this whole process. And, and so they weren't offending each other, but if they ever got upset, they would get upset at us. And so that's really, this deal did not work out like we hoped it would, but it was a good learning experience. Uh, well, in this particular situation though, when you have deal terms, I think for people that are listening, you know, when deal terms are going to change, if there is a substantial change in the economics of the business, whether it's revenue or profits or whatever, the metrics you're looking at, you have to expect deal terms to change. And so it's not an emotional thing. It's just a financial thing. And generally speaking, reasonable minds can work out something that where all parties win. And in this particular case, you're telling me that the emotions kind of took over and he was offended. And because of that, he just walked away. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I've got to say, the vast majority of times something like this happens, it gets worked out. Um, I was surprised. Uh, I think there was other things at work here, actually, that we don't have time to get into today. But uh, most of the times you work through these things and you compromise and you, you figure out a solution for both sides. We had a motivated buyer, a motivated seller. Those deals always go through. This was uh, highly exceptional that this didn't, uh, but that's the deal world. Things happen sometimes that are not normal.
All right. Well, we'll be back here and we'll talk a bit about some of the better transactions that you've been involved in that had perhaps better outcomes. I'm taking many of the stories and their takeaways, including the ones that are shared here today by Eric White, founder of the EBB Group. I'm taking his stories and hundreds of other deals that intermediaries have dealt with over the years and shared on this podcast, and I'm taking some of my business experience that I've had over the decades and putting these insights into a new book called Pack Your Parachute, The Strategies Behind a Successful and Profitable Business Exit. If you would like to get a copy on a pre-publication offer of this book, just go to www.businessexitstories.com forward slash book and register for this offer. If you register, I will send you a book when it is published at a 90% discount just as a reward for signing up. Again, go to businessexitstories.com forward slash book for this exclusive offer. All right, Eric, why don't you take a few minutes and talk about some transactions that went well and turned out where the owners got exactly what they wanted and maybe even more than they wanted. Yeah. Thank you, Martin. These are much more pleasant to talk about <laughs> than the other two, uh, but uh, appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I, the one thing I would leave with any business owner is it's such a, a overused and misused phrase that we hear every day, but it's so true. And that's relationships are everything, uh, especially in the deal world. The deals that go well, the deals that have successful outcomes that are truly a win-win are when they're the strongest relationships. There's just no getting around that. Uh, both of these situations I just described, uh, I don't think the relationship was that strong uh, between us and the client uh, or the buyer and the client. There was stuff lacking. And I think it's ultimately why the deals didn't go through. Uh, these other two situations I was going to talk about are two of the, the better deals we've done in, in our 25 years uh, because the relationships were so strong. Uh, these deals both happened from seven to 10 years ago. And to this day, we still have great relationships with these owners. Uh, they treat us as family. Uh, they respect us greatly. We respect them. And it's um, that's the way deals are supposed to work. And so I encourage all business owners to, if you're going to do, sell your company, um, engage completely. Uh, don't do it, uh, you know, a half effort, but go after it, um, go all in, trust the people that you hire to do it with. So this one deal uh, that probably my favorite deal in 25 years of doing business, I think I learned a lot of lessons and this was about 10 years ago. Uh, we had a business owner that uh, really did not look the part. A lot of business owners have uh, great wealth. What type of business was he in? Yeah, it was an aerospace company, a large aerospace company in the Texas market. Very well known. Been around for 40 some years. Um, tremendous company. But the owner, um, you just would not think he's the owner of a, you know, a company that's going to end up selling for over $80 million. He is uh, just very unassuming. He's almost 70 years old. Um, you know, a, a a little slow, uh, just was not on top of his numbers, but a great guy, very friendly, quiet. And uh, it took a while to build a relationship with him, no doubt about it. He was uh, not trusting at first, and it just took longer than it might normally be to build that trust level between us. And um, I, the other thing, we, we really didn't zero in on value at the very beginning of, of what his needs were and I, I knew what I thought the market would do, but I really wasn't 100% confident in what he would take for his business or what he thought the value was. 
And that was a real issue. And the other real issue in this deal, it turns out, was at the beginning, we wasted a lot of time and spun our wheels because we did not have a relationship with their financial source, their CFO. Uh, we only had a relationship with the owner. The owner was not strong financially, and it, it really deterred the process. Uh, buyers have to know everything. Was it one of the reasons you didn't have the relationship is that he didn't really want it commonly known in the company that he was thinking of selling? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, exactly what the reason was. Um, uh, our biggest priority whenever we meet with clients is confidentiality. We tell every client um, that is in the mid-market, that is the most important thing. Uh, it does not help any business owner for employees, customers, suppliers to know they're for sale. So we go out of our way to protect confidentiality. In this case, he also went out of his way to protect confidentiality. He did not want anybody to know about it. So I, we totally respected that, and we did the best we could with that situation. Well, it, it went down the road. Uh, we actually got a, a great offer right off the bat. Um, this was a very nice company. And the offer, I remember, was about $55 million. And we thought that was a pretty strong offer based on EBITDA uh, that we thought we knew what EBITDA was. Again, we did not have great financial information. Um, we knew their financial statements, but there was a lot hidden that we were not aware of because the CFO, we were not, did not have access to him. So he turned down $55 million flat. Uh, so that's not even close to what I want. And uh, Did he even think about it? Didn't even think about it. It probably took him 10 seconds to say no. Uh, didn't even think about it. Uh, we thought, and this was a guy that I thought would love to have $55 million. Well, so what uh, you described, how he was, he's kind of a good old boy and yep. drove a pickup, sounds like. And it's kind of like Sam Walton had his 55 Ford pickup or whatever and just didn't look the part. Yeah. And now there's no doubt about that. I think sometimes uh, all of us are guilty of prejudging uh, the book by its cover, so to speak. And uh, not that I in any way thought anything disparaging about him. I just thought he would except $55 million. Uh, and, and that really was a fair offer based on what we knew. Uh, we knew, we thought at the time EBITDA was about $7 million, And um, we didn't know it was more than that. So based on that, it was a fair offer. And that's why I was you know, frustrated because we thought we got him a, a really nice offer based on the information we had. Well, it turned out, then we had a serious discussion about value, about what he would take. And, uh, and he made the, the comment to me that I've never forgotten, which is kind of interesting for the folks that might listen to this podcast, as far as people's perception of value. Um, you know, we do all of our homework. We do, like I said earlier, we do precedent transactions and discounted cash flows. And, and we really try to understand the market as closely as we can and come back to a business owner with a range of value. So we might have said to him, we think your business is worth between 50 and 60, for instance. And if we got an offer for 55, we feel like that's pretty strong. Well, so he said to me that uh, he said a friend of his had sold his company and he has breakfast with him once a week, him and a bunch of buddies and sold his business for, uh, I think it was $72 million. And he goes, I won't sell it for one penny less. I know my business is better than his. I know we're more profitable. I know I've known this guy for 35 years. And that was his basis. Uh, it wasn't based on any facts or, or analysis or anything. And I you know, took that with a grain of salt. And, uh, but still, I was convinced because EBITDA was only $7 million, We could never get over a 10 multiple for an aerospace firm. It, it was unheard of to get a multiple that high for a company like this. So um, I, I took a big gamble. 
um, when I, he went out of the country to Japan one time and um, I knew that I, I had to talk to the CFO. This deal was going nowhere uh, and we had no chance. So I really kind of took a Hail Mary swing at it. I called the CFO and um, I was just going to feel him out. Actually, my intention was not to say too much. Well, because you had your confidentiality because you didn't think you really should do that necessarily because of the confidentiality. And no doubt about it. Yeah, I was not going to say who I was exactly or anything like that. Uh, but I was going to feel him out and, and see if he knew much or see if he was aware of what's going on at all. And so as soon as I called him, I said, uh, Rick, and his name is Rick. And I said, Rick, uh, my name is Eric White. And I said, you probably don't know me. And he goes, Eric, I know all about you. I know everything that's going on. Um, you'll never get this done without me. <laughs> it turns out he was 100% right. Um, he was like waiting for me to call, waiting for us to connect at some point. Um, Red had told him everything. The owner of the company's name was Red. Um, and I, I figured he had to have. I mean, there's no way a CFO could be kept in the dark about all this. It turns out uh, Rick and I became very close. Um, he helped me get the deal done. Uh, we found out that EBITDA was not seven. It was about nine and a half. So the numbers made a lot more sense. We sold the company for $80 million. Uh, To this day, uh, Red and I are great friends. He's very appreciative, uh, treats us like family. He, sold, uh, he bought a $12 million ranch with his money. So a guy that never really spent money his whole life it was very frugal. Uh, now is enjoying his life. And, and that's what's so rewarding to me is when you can really be a trusted family member uh, more than even an advisor. And, uh, and that's why this was such a special deal for us. And I'll say, Marvin, the last thing that became a special deal, Rick McConathy, who was the CFO, has been working for EBB Group for the last eight years. Uh, he loved the process. It really liked me so much. He left HM Dunn and came to work at my firm. So uh, we not only sold the deal and did really well, but we also got one of my top people that been with me for many years. Well, sounds like a win all the way around. Just before we leave this transaction, I'm just kind of curious on how you take financials from a seven EBITDA, earnings before taxes and interest and amortization, to over nine and a half. What did the CFO do to magically make $2.5 million of EBITDA appear? Yeah, really good question. You know, it's certainly not magic. The money was always there, just wasn't apparent. Um, so what happens when we have access to all the information, uh, what we do is we recast financial statements. And what we're looking for is things that are uh, personal that go through. The, we've seen everything. We've seen owners that have expensive planes, uh, own uh, second, third homes, uh, all kinds of things, have five family members on the payroll. So there's all kind of personal addbacks that, that obviously a new owner is not going to have those same expenses. And so they go straight back to EBITDA. There's a lot of one-time fees that like, let's say you spend a million dollars, put a new uh, ERP system in. Well, that's a one-time thing. You only do that once every 20 years. Uh, it's non-recurring expenses. Uh, like let's say you fix up your, your building and spend a couple million dollars or, or you buy a new piece of real estate, all those kind of things. So it, it's a very common, actually, there would be that much extra in EBITDA. We just didn't know it. And and the owner wasn't really that up on that. He just ran the business. Yeah, because he wanted to keep you isolated and just talk to you. And so you didn't have access to all those things. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. The CFO knew everything. Well, made him a lot of money just by talking to his CFO. 
Well, no doubt about it. It's a, it's a key for any business owner that listens to your podcast. Uh, they have to trust their advisor and they really have to bring certain important people into the deal. They have to. And the CFO is critical to get any deal done. They've, you've got to have that trust with a couple people. Well, it sounds like the big takeaway here is uh, like in our other story, you may think your business is worth something, but it really doesn't make any difference what you think it is. It has to be supported by the financials. And in this case, on the positive side, once you had access to those financials, you were able to justify a much higher purchase price because you had accurate financials of what the realistic and accurate earnings were of the company and you were able to validate a higher value because of that. So that, I think that's a great takeaway from this transaction. Absolutely. Well, why don't we wrap up here, Eric, and have you share just one more story about a transaction that you were able to close. Yeah, thank you, Marvin. Uh, this is actually, um, these two are our two favorites because these were the two strongest relationships we ever built in the 25 years we've been doing this. And, and that's what makes it special. Um, to this day, both these accounts, uh, seven, eight years later, we're still very close to. So you don't just do a deal and walk away. Hopefully these are friends for life. And uh, this other deal uh, was uh, a manufacturing company um, in the Texas market. We actually, uh, one more thing about our company, we do business in 40 states. Um, so I've given you some examples of two of both these good deals happened in the state of Texas, but we have over 200 some deals in 40 states. So these stories, it's not a Texas thing, although I, I am in Texas. So I wanted to point that out. But uh, this other situation is all about culture. And I think that's the thing that we took away from this. Uh, you have to really understand the culture of your own business. And so for any business owners out there, uh, you know your culture, but the important part is how you portray your culture to a buyer. Um, there's different kind of values that are built into every company. There's uh, implicit value and there's um, basis value that somebody would see just obviously, like equipment. And you know how much you paid for equipment and you know how much your real estate's worth and you know how much money you made. Those are very explicit things. They're obvious and easy to track. Uh, implicit value is much harder to track, but it's incredibly important. And one of the biggest implicit values is culture, uh, is goodwill, is reputation, is uh, years in business. It's um, uh, you know, reputation you have in the marketplace. All these things are so important to a deal. And this business had it in spades, uh, a tremendous family. Uh, they were all very, there was four family members all involved, husband, wife, son, and daughter. They were strong Christians, um, great people. Uh, they cared about doing the right thing all the time. Their customers loved them. I just can't stress enough um, what an incredible culture this was uh, within the company. So we knew pretty immediately that we had to find the right culture. Uh, we had to find the right buyer that appreciated that culture and would pay top value for that culture uh, because not everybody will. Every, a lot of groups will only pay for what the financials say. Uh, they won't pay extra. And we were not looking for that in this deal. We thought the value was so much greater because of the culture of this company. And so uh, we had found a buyer through our normal process, a tremendous buyer, uh, the Rosewood Group, which is one of the top family offices in the country, ran by Carolyn Hunt, a billionaire, part of the Hunt family. Uh, they loved the business. Uh, everything was great. Uh, we had, this was 
about eight years ago. Uh, we had a deal in place for almost $60 million. Uh, it was what they wanted. Everything was right down the middle of the fairway, actually, until the quality of earning audit came about. And so this is another thing. So why don't you talk a little bit about that quality of earnings that some of our audience might not be familiar with? Yes, thank you. It's really a critical thing. And, and if you're not familiar with the quality of earning audit and you sell your business, you will get familiar with it because it happens in every deal. Every deal that does not have audited financials, in my experience in the, the middle market, any deal under $100 million generally does not have audited financials. It's kind of a rarity that they do. So if they don't have audited financials, that means they're reviewed and they're probably 99% accurate. So there'll be a quality of earnings audit that's performed by the bank. It's loaning the money to the deal. Most of the time in a deal that the buyer will put in about 30% equity and the rest of the money comes from the bank in the form of debt or seller note or any kind of structure like that. So in this particular case, um, there was a deal in place. I said it was almost $60 million and the quality of earning audit came about and uh, we were all shocked really. Um, the, the account was shocked. They had a, a strong program with the V-22 Osprey, which is a lot of people know it's a helicopter program. A lot of the helicopters in the military are V-22 Ospreys. And, um, you know, long story short, they just missed some things in the costing of the program and um, a lot of the reworks they had to do. And so they were making a lot less money on this program than they thought they were. So EBITDA wasn't really 9 million like they thought it was about 7.2 million well when when that happens and it was accurate both sides agreed it was accurate uh then there's going to be a retrade just for our audience here that term retrade means renegotiated right that's exactly right renegotiate the deal based on different financials so then the deal they kept the exact same multiple of ebitda that they had and that was good uh but they put it on 7 million instead of 9 million basically so if you if you look at that, there's a two million dollar difference in EBITDA times seven. It's about fourteen million dollars. That's a I call that a big haircut. So fourteen million dollar haircut, and so it was fair. The buyer was very fair, uh, but the seller decided no. We need to get our house in order. <laughs> we shouldn't be missing things like this. We probably need better systems. We're going to pull it off the market. Um, we completely supported that. In fact, we recommended that. And um, we kept a strong relationship with them for the next three years. Um, they did a new ERP system. Uh, they, uh, we were able to keep one of our CFOs involved in their business for three years. Uh, we actually helped them do their books every month. So we were not only their investment banker, we became their their temporary CFO arm actually for three years. Yeah, kind of an outsourced CFO situation. And we do that. It's a service that we provide since we have eight CFOs that work for our company. We do provide a, an outsourced CFO service. Uh, because of this, a lot of companies need CFOs. <laughs> and so we're able to help uh, the process until they're ready to sell. So this happened. Um, lo and behold, they became a very better, uh, much different company, better company, better run company. They learned from this. And uh, fortunately, they, they always told us they would stay with us. They loved the relationship. And so three years later, we ran a brand new process from scratch. Uh, we found a perfect buyer that loved this company, completely appreciated the, uh, the culture, paid extra for the culture. Uh, we got them a tremendous deal. Uh, they were incredibly grateful. 
And again, we're, we're close friends to this day because, uh, you know, they, they valued that we cared about them. Uh, we didn't push the deal. We cared about the timing. Uh, so Marvin, for all of your business owners out there that listen to this, one of the big takeaways I would take for this particular situation is, you know, timing is everything. That's another cliche that everybody uses all the time. But maybe now isn't the right time to sell your business. Um, but if you need to trust your advisor, if they're experienced and they know the market, uh, maybe the best time is two or three years from now. Maybe you need to get some things in order first uh, to be able to maximize your value. So we try to be that kind of consultative advisor to our clients uh, so that they know uh, when the right time to go to market is to maximize their value. Well, I think that's well put. I think for the listeners here that timing is important. And in this particular situation, what you're really talking about is that they realized they had a, a gap in their financial systems that missed this revenue and on the cost side, really. And they were able to put in the right financial management systems that fixed that hole. Mm -hmm. And that when they came back to market a few years later, they got what they needed. And so, you know, $14 million earned in a couple of years is not a bad investment of time and effort. And for whatever it costs them to put in the right systems, it was probably a great return on their investment. Yeah, no question about it. This worked out really well. And uh, so it really takes a respect level between both parties. Or they'll listen and trust. And uh, and our goal is to get the very best situation for our clients. And that uh, might take three years. You never know. Well, this has been fascinating, Eric. You obviously have a tremendous amount of experience and have done hundreds of deals. And each of those has their challenges. And the ones you've chatted about here today and the takeaways that you've shared with us today, I think, will be beneficial to anyone that listens to these transactional stories that you've shared with us here today. Eric, if someone wanted to reach out and get a hold of you, share with us how they might be able to do that. Yes. Uh, thank you, Marvin. Really appreciate it. Uh, we love working with clients all across the country. So no matter where you are, uh, we are in virtually every state in the country. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, my direct phone number in Dallas is 972-898-3748. And my direct email address is ewhite at ebbgroup.net. Um, so I really appreciate this opportunity. I always love talking about deals. It is fascinating, the deal world, and um, never ceases to be interesting every day. Well, thanks for being with us here. And so until next time, when we talk about more deal stories, this is Marvin L. Storm from Business Exit Stories. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning. Remember to get your pre-publication edition of my new book, Pack Your Parachute, The Strategies Behind a Successful and Profitable Business Exit. Simply go to businessexitstories.com forward slash book. Again, that's businessexitstories.com forward slash book. If you register now for my pre-publication edition, I will send you a discount code that you can use on Amazon for a 90% off copy of your book as a reward for being a Business Exit Stories podcast listener.